please be seated, except the kiddos, you can be dismissed to the rear. Uh, thanks be to God, it is the power of Christ that dwells within me that I stand before you today. Were it not for His power, I could not preach to you anything that would be of any value to you. Uh, it's by His power and for His glory that we assemble and sing His praises. And so, uh, so thankful for the parents that are here, and uh, we're grateful for the children uh, welcome Jean's first Sunday to church. Praise the Lord. I remember my oldest son's first time at church. So it's crazy how time flies. So we're grateful for each of you. We pray for you. We celebrate children. And so towards that end, I'm going to pray for those kids as they go back to hear the gospel. Let's, us, let's be reminded, guys, that most, if not all of them, don't know the gospel. So they're going right now to be evangelized. That's what those guys, that's what our members are doing sharing the gospel with people that don't yet trust the Lord. Maybe, maybe they do, but anyway, let's pray for them, pray for ourselves. Father, we do pray for the preaching of your word right now, that it would fall on ears that have hearts that are fertile soil to see the Spirit use it to grow up life. We pray for the children as they go now, for their teachers. Lord, thank you for those gifted teachers to teach the word. We pray that it would bear fruit in the lives of all of those children that go in here now. And Lord, bless our time. May there be those that possibly do not believe now that they would come to believe over the course of the next few minutes. Next, We pray also for those that do believe that we would come to learn to walk in wisdom. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite quotes, uh, you've heard it before. I quoted it a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, It's by, I think it's a French guy. I can't pronounce his name. That's oftentimes, by the way, why I don't pronounce, say it, because I can't pronounce his name. Uh, it's a long-looking French name. But he says this. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people t- to collect wood and then assign them tasks. Rather, teach them to long for the immensity of the sea. I love that quote because what it does is it helps us understand how uh, we can be motivated towards greatness. It's not merely by just feeding people information. We've got to do that part. But it's in part of seeing this bigger vision of a beautiful life together. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in the book of Ephesians. He's writing to a local church, a church in Ephesus, to help them understand what their life together should look like. So as to picture the greatness of the glory of God. And to have them enjoy the fellowship of the Spirit. To be heaven and enjoy the foretaste of heaven on earth, out in front of time. And that's what we're trying to do here. We as Christians, as we've seen in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, we have come to see that our identity is, as Christians, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We've seen that we're chosen, that we're blessed, that we're predestined for adoption as sons, that we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, that we have an inheritance, that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, that we are the body of Christ, that we are alive, we are seated with Christ. We have been brought near to the throne of grace. We've seen that we are one. We've seen that we are fellow citizens of the kingdom of God, members of the household of God, the dwelling place of God, partakers of the promise, saints who are deeply loved. Therefore, as holy ones who have this identity, we walk in love as He loved us. Picturing heaven while out here on earth, sacrificing ourselves uh, for the good of others to God. As our covenant says uh, here at this church, we will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, 
denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation to lead a new and holy life. Not just because we have to. Not even just because we think it's a good idea. But because it's beautiful. So, that leads us to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. This, these ideas, you cannot lose sight of this, guys. These commands, they're not easy to preach. Y'all may think they're easy to preach. They're not. Because my temptation is to stand up here. All right, goes, do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. It's hard because I, you have to see that bigger vision. If not, it's just me being moralistic. Ephesians 5, 15-21. That's the very next verse. We left off last week at verse 14. Verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Big idea this morning, simple, you can see it right there. In verse 15, carefully walk in wisdom. Carefully walk in wisdom. You can see again where I'm getting that from verse 15. You should then ask the question, how do I do that? How do I then walk carefully in wisdom? As a result of my identity in Christ, how do I walk not as unwise, but as wise? I'm going to give us five ways to do that. I think Paul gives us five ways to do that this morning. But let's begin by supplying a good definition of what wisdom is. If we're going to walk in wisdom, carefully walk in wisdom, we need to know what wisdom is. So we're trying to always, one of the things we like to do at this church is provide good definitions for you on words that are often often not defined out in the world. So last week we had a good definition of love, choosing to excite life in another at the cost of ourselves. This week here's a good definition, I think it's a good definition, of wisdom. Wisdom is properly applying the truth. That's what wisdom is. That's what wisdom does. Properly applying the truth. So if this, for instance, is a bottle of water, which I believe that it is, I believe that's true. All right, I hope you do too. If this is a bottle of water and is designed for me to open up and drink, then it would be wisdom to properly apply that by drinking it. That's wisdom. Wisdom is properly applied truth. The opposite of wisdom is improperly applying the truth, right? That would be unwise. So, in other words, if I took this bottle and used it as a hammer, or as, yes, a hammer to nail a nail into, the, into a wall, that would be unwise, because I'm not properly applying the truth of what this bottle is and what this bottle does. Carefully walking in wisdom, properly applying the truth. Proverbs makes really clear that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. In other words, we are in awe of Him. So we properly apply the truth by first recognizing we live in submission to a big and a holy God. And so as beloved children, we carefully walk in wisdom. God's great. He's big. We want to properly apply the truth of Jesus in our lives. We do this, Paul supplies, five ways. Here's the first. We carefully walk in wisdom 
when we as adopted sons and daughters are watchful for evil, which wars against our souls. Watchful for evil that wars against our souls. So we need to agree, guys, that the days, verse 16, are evil. We do this. We do live, look at chapter 6, verse 12, right after this. We do live in a present evil age. We've got to agree that that's a reality. That we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Therefore, we need to look, verse 15, look carefully how we walk, knowing that evil is around us. If we are going to walk as wise, not as unwise, we must acknowledge and come to grips with the reality that spiritual warfare is real, it's common, and it's powerfully and actively trying to destroy us. That includes, by the way, this moment right here. Especially this moment when we're opening up the Bible and talking about it. Spiritual warfare is attempting to be had now. You live as unwise if you don't at least acknowledge this reality and are watchful for it as a result. You can't look, you can't look carefully if you don't acknowledge and are aware of the menacing forces of evil who are literally hell bent on dividing churches, picking off stray sheep, and leading others away from the truth and love and into then themselves. The days are evil. The days we live in are not marked by righteousness. That doesn't mean that righteousness is not here. It's just they're not marked by righteousness, but evil. The days are not basically good, as I think our society would have us to believe. Nor are the days sort of neutral, sort of the yin and yang, kind of good and evil fighting against itself. Good is present, no doubt. But they are marked by evil. They are oriented by evil. The world is corrupted. Molecular biology tells us that. City planning tells us that. The proliferation of false religions, places that pose as Christian uh, churches that yet neuter the gospel, they tell us that. I think we see that in Hollywood, New York, Congress, and courtrooms tells us that. If we look back in Ephesians 4, 17-19, this is one of the hard things, by the way, of working through letters. He just said this like 10 seconds ago. And yet here we are four months later. Looking back at Ephesians 4, we have to be reminded that the nations, look at 4.17, the nations have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and they practice every kind of impurity. As a result, it says, their hearts are hard to the truth. That's how Paul understands the nations, the world to be operating. And as we saw last week, chapter 5, verse 6, slip up. Since the nations are like this, words of empty deception are going to tempt us towards darkness and away from the light. Thus this call to walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. The days are evil. We live in this present darkness. We live as liberated vigilantes, not as libertines. While on earth, we wear boots, not flip-flops. We carry swords, not koozies. We travel together, not alone. We watch, not sleep. Because the days are evil. We carefully walk in this life. We do not blindly sprint according to the dictates of our delights. We live in a minefield. Guys, in our nine years together as a church, I have unfortunately had the front row seat of watching this happen to numerous people. That they not walk carefully and they get picked off. 
People were not looking. They were not being careful. They were not walking in wisdom, not properly applying the truth to their days. They acknowledged that this was a reality, that evil was present, but they didn't walk carefully. They were overconfident and there was nothing to see here, as it were, when admonitions came to them. They were convinced that they loved Jesus, that this situation or this person or this person's was no big deal. They were not careful and they got picked off. I've watched it happen. They weren't careful. Because they were looking. They were not looking. They were not being careful. They didn't listen to these calls to not be deceived. And eventually they were deceived. Octavius Winslow writes of Satan. He knows your circumstances. He is acquainted with the network of your trying and difficult position. And he is prepared to forge from it a weapon of assault against your principles, your well-being, and your peace. The devil is marvelously strategic. His suggestions will have all the appearance of reason, fitness, and propriety. They will seem plausible and honest. Nevertheless, they are satanic. They are from beneath, and they must not receive consideration for even a moment. Unquote. Church family, our warnings against particular patterns of behaviors in your life are there because we believe this. Careful walking, careful wisdom is demanded for our present evil age. And we love you. And so, as one of your pastors, it's my demand, it's my requirement, according to God's Word, to protect you. That's my job description, to protect you from those that will try to hurt you. I know We as elders know that the evil one wants to fill you with doubt, with despair, and with dreams that will pull you away from the good life. And so I don't love you if I leave you. I love you when I pray for you, when I plead with you, and try to pull you into better rhythms, better lines of thinking. And guys, I realize I get that wrong sometimes. But that's my aim. Our elders, that's our aim to pull you into that. You can go to other churches where you'll be just another face in the crowd. You can walk in there, consume their service, and leave. But not at this church. Not this church. Our elders, our members understand that it is our collective responsibility to know you, to love you, and to point you to Jesus so you can get home safely. Look out. Walk carefully in the world, not as unwise but is wise, knowing evil wars against us. That's the first way we walk in wisdom. Second way we walk in wisdom is by making the best use of our time. Making the best use of our time. You can see that there, verse 16. And when you look down there, take a look at it. When you see it, I want you to notice there that God's Word sees a connection between the use of our time and the reality of evil. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. You see that connection? So we could say it a different way. Because the days are evil, we need to make the best use of our time. So I wonder, if does that mark your thought life? For those of you that are in Christ, does that mark your thought life? That you see the need to live as wise, not as unwise. You need to make the best use of your time because you know the days are evil. Is that something that marks your lines of thinking? See, I would assume that all of us agree there's a lot of evil in the world. My guess is nobody would deny that in this room. And I think we also would all agree that we should make the best use of our time, not the worst. I think everybody in the room agrees that. But that's not what the Word's saying. 
The word's trying to make a connection between those two things. I'm not sure that we often make that connection. I think most of us want to be productive, want to make the best use of our time, don't want to do evil or have evil happen to us, but rarely are we making the connection that the way I use my time will work against evil and as a result for good in my life and the life of others. Do we think about that piece? So think about it this way. A pilot's habitual testing of her devices before she takes off That's the best use of her time because it protects her from the evil of a crash. She would be foolish, in other words, to use her time by not doing those things and instead eat a donut. Follow me? The best use of your time after you get into a car is to check your mirrors, look at the traffic around you, and then you pull out. It would be foolish to just hop in a car and pull out. Because what? Crash. Same is true in our lives together as Christians. If we are not doing the daily and momentary equivalent of checking our mirrors, looking around ourselves, we could pull out into the world and crash because we didn't make the best use of our time before we left that day or as we were operating that day. A couple things to keep in mind. I want you all to think about this more this afternoon. What you do will determine what you love. And what you love will determine what you do. So as a result, guys, we say this a lot around here, but when we call you to regularly be spending time in the Word and in prayer, consistently showing up here early, uh, being here, gathering here, regularly attending community groups, having discipling relationships, one-on-one, twos-on-one, whatever, having lunch, praying together. We don't say those things because we're trying to make you a good club member of Restoration Church. It's not why we say those things. We have no home office that we're trying to, you know, report our numbers to so we feel good about ourselves. That ain't happening. That's not why we do those things. We say those things because we call you to those things because those are some of the best use of your time. And they are the best use of some of your time because they cultivate the love of God in your heart and in the hearts of others. And simultaneously push away the present evil age that's trying to invade your soul. And likewise, the opposite is true. You are unwise or foolish, as Paul says down there, if you don't take the name, if you, if you take the name of Christ and don't regularly gather here. Don't spend time in His Word. Don't spend time, not only in personal prayer, but corporate prayer. Don't attend community groups. Don't participate in discipling relationships. Those things are unwise because they, by not doing them, you make yourself susceptible to being corrupted by this present evil age. And so, church family, if as a result of your travel schedule you miss church a couple weeks, uh, you miss the preaching, the singing, the fellowship of the Word, and simultaneously, because of that travel schedule, you find that your personal devotions have kind of been interrupted, don't be surprised when you find yourself succumbing to the urges of your flesh. Now, I'm sure, guys, that when I say stuff like this, I sound like the Ebenezer Scrooge of pastoral ministry. Read your Bibles. Come to church, right? But I hope you see what we're after. I love you. I'm trying to love you. Like my sons, I'm trying to teach them ways to live. And when they do this and don't do that, like I get concerned because I want them to know the good life. We're not just checking boxes here. We're trying to help you make the best use of your time because the days are evil. 
Once again, you can go to other churches where you'll be allowed to take the name of Christ and use the ministry of the church like Verizon. We switch to Sprint, whatever you want. Right? Not here. That's not the way we see our roles as pastors or roles as the members of the body of Christ in the church. The Lord calls us to be watchful, to love each other, to help each other home to heaven as the evil one in an evil world tries to distract us from that destination. Let me say two things really briefly in light of these things. First off, I recognize that I could say that there are other things that are the best use of your time. Most of you spend 40, 50 hours a week at your job. Insofar as you're doing that for the Lord, that's a great use of your time. Those parents in the room, you should be spending time with your children. Exercising, best use of your time. I could mention other things. But these spiritual disciplines I'm referencing because they're the heart. They're the heart. But also, I realize there's a small group. I don't think this is most people in the room. But I know my church well enough to know that there is a small group of you that live in tyranny to that verse. They're always scrutinizing if they're making the best use of their time. Some of you just need to relax. Right? And rest in the grace and mercy of Christ. So just keep that in mind as we go through the rest of the sermon. That's not most of you in the room, to be clear. So you know who you are. Carefully walk as wise through your understanding that wisdom is properly applying the truth, recognizing we live in a minefield, evil wars against us. Also, we need to make the best use of a time as a result. And thirdly, we then also need to uh, understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And by the way, if I haven't made this clear, this is all empowered by the Spirit of God as we trust Him to birth it in us. I could just teach you this stuff. It's not... Mm, try hard. Trust Jesus to work through in us. So that's why I started the sermon, by the way, with all those truths, therefore. Okay, don't lose sight of that. Thirdly, what the will of the Lord is. That's wisdom, walking wisdom. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. So some of you are saying, when you hear that, understand what the will of the Lord is. Some of you are saying, great, Nathan. That's exactly what I've been trying to figure out for the last three years of my life. Right? I've been there. I've changed my uh, changed my college major three times. I've changed my profession two or three times. I've been in this relationship, got out of that one, not sure about that. You know, trying to figure that out. I'm wondering if I should move to Topeka, Kansas, or Vietnam. I haven't figured that out, what the will of the Lord is in that. Okay, that's not what Paul's talking about. Not. Here, when he says wisdom is walking in, knowing what the will of the Lord is, he's not talking about our individual, uh, what we might, what theologians often call the secret will of God. The only way you're going to know that, by the way, guys, is by, by it happening and you look back and say, oh, that's what it was, right? right? Paul is referring here to what we might call the sovereign will that God has for all of humanity. Know what the truth is so that you can properly apply it. What's that truth? Knowing the will of God. And so that will of God is this sovereign truth for all of humanity. I can remember counting before... Uh, before I married my wife, I dated my wife, even I dated another girl, and I remember this true story happened. I wonder if I should be with this girl or not. I was counting school buses. There's a reason for that. I literally counted school buses, and I thought, maybe if I see a lot of school buses, this is God trying to talk to me to tell me what the will of God is. That's tyranny. That's not liberty. That's not what Paul's talking about here. What God wants for your life is actually not too hard to find out. <laughs> That's a bold statement, isn't it? 
I love doing this. One of my favorite pastor tricks. Guess what? I know what the God's will is for your life. Every single one of you. You ready for it? You're probably not going to like my answer, but it's going to be true. First Thessalonians 4, 3. Clear as day. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. It goes on, by the way, in chapter 5, we could mention this later. This is the will of God, your thankfulness. The will of God, what Paul's referencing here, know the will of God. That's walking in wisdom. And what that is, what the will of God is for us, is our being sanctified. God desires us to be sanctified. To be sanctified means to be made holy. Be holy. So you may not like how abstract that is, but folks, the more that you understand what a holy life is, the more you understand what the good life is, the more you understand that a holy life is a good life, most of your decisions will be made clear. And even if they're not, you'll find that there's freedom in those decisions that are unclear. See, God wants you to know Him, to love Him, to pursue Him, know what He's like, understand His character. And He wants you to then, from that, love others. Care for others. See the character of God formed in others. Galatians 6.10 would have us to see, especially the church. Love God, love others. I was telling somebody the other day that like the longer I grow in my faith, the more I understand the Bible, the more I see Jesus, what, he, what Jesus meant when he said the whole law is fulfilled in loving God and loving neighbor. I've almost, have you all noticed, by the way, the rest of the sermons for the next 40 years that you all sit under me, most of them will come back to those two commands, which God empowers. That's God's will for your life. Repent of sin. Work at your job. Help other people follow Jesus. That's going to be 90% of your decision making. So some of you are saying, well, Nathan, should I marry Sally? Well, does Sally love Jesus? Because God's word, sanctification, would have you to marry another Christian if you're in Christ. Does Sally desire to do all the things that are considered holy for a wife? Are you desirous to uh, do all that a holy life would have for a husband? Do you want to do those things together? Off you go. Right? God's will for your life is your sanctification. He's made it clear what marriage is, what marriage does. Nathan, should I buy this? Well, God hates debt. Are you in debt? All right, now if you need food, you should buy food. All right, buy food. But does it contribute to debt? Well, there's some nuance there that we could have a conversation with. You're like, Nathan, exactly. But nevertheless, God hates debt. Have you given first... Uh, have you given some of your money to the work of God? Are you being generous to others? Do you already own five of those things? If the answer to all of those is in the positive, it's holy, then listen, buy it and enjoy it. Nathan, should I take this job or that job? Well, is there anything about those two jobs that would not be pleasing to the Lord? Look back up in chapter 5, verse 10. Try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Those two jobs, is there anything about those jobs that would not be pleasing to the Lord? Will they both allow you to make the best use of your time, knowing the days are evil? Which, by the way, that means, as a lot of employers like to do, all due respect, if you are an employer in this town, this city likes to make slaves of their employees and work you 60, 70 hours a week. Will the job, what, those two jobs, will it make you allow you to make the best use of your time? If the answer is yes, have your pick. That great African saint, Augustine, said, love God and do what you want. And we always focus on that second half, but you've got to get the first part right, right? <laughs> love God, know what he's like, and then find the freedom to make those choices. 
The Lord is not some maniacal parent that has created some individualized path that only you have to figure out through all of your religious training. And the second you make a bad choice off of that, he's going to kind of punish you until you get back on that path. That's the picture of an unloving God. That's not the picture of the God of the Bible. God has made his word clear to us. Those big ideas of what holy is, holiness is. It's clear. Jesus told us he's the path. Look at Jesus. Love him. Treasure him. Hope in him to be empowered to walk it out. Trust him for strength. Do what he does. Love what he loves. Hate what he hates. And live in the freedom of Christ. And don't, Galatians 5.1, great two passages. Galatians 5.1 says, it was for freedom that we have been set free. Galatians 5.13, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. There's most of the Christian life. It's not that mysterious. You can open up the Bible and see it. If you have trouble, by the way, understanding what sanctification is, that's why we're here to help you in that. So just come and talk to us. But there are some in this room I recognize that haven't made that first step. God's will for your life is that you would be sanctified, that you would be saved, and you're not saved. And so let me speak to you just briefly for a moment. The first way that you can walk in wisdom, friend, is by repenting of your sin that you've committed against a holy God. And then, listen, trust in Jesus to forgive you of all of your sin, to reconcile you back to himself so that he could know you and love you and then you would respond to that wonderful grace by walking out in wisdom like this. That's the first step you need to take to know what the will of God is to repent of sin and trust in Jesus and be born again. And if that's you, please come and talk to me. Talk to the person that brought you. Talk to a neighbor. I, I promise you, the members of our church, that's, the, that's one of the most favorite things they're going to be able to talk about, is to talk about Jesus. So just talk to them. Jesus gives us sanctification. It's not your good works. You can't do good, you can't do good enough to be saved. That's living wisely. And if you, by the way, want to repent of sin and trust in Christ and walk in wisdom, this next step that I'm about to take is going to be awkward. There's a reason for it, though. Fourth step, walking in wisdom. Don't get drunk. No way to smooth that out. Right? There's a reason why Paul says it. We'll show it in a second. But don't get drunk, for that is debauchery, he says. That's verse 18. Fourth way that we walk in wisdom, not getting drunk on wine, he says. By the way, can we just make this clear? Wine doesn't say like you're allowed to get drunk on beer, all right? So (laughs) drunkenness is out of the picture, all right? It's debauchery. Paul is not some beelying his argument because he's like been influenced by the 1920s prohibition movement. So he's like, I'm going to figure out a way to get this into the argument. He's not doing that. It's actually a clear line of connection. Look what comes next. And you can understand why he says that in walking in wisdom. Don't be drunk on wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. In other words, when someone is drunk, they are being controlled by alcohol instead of being controlled by the Spirit of God that's training us in holiness and sanctification. But the point remains, it is unwise, it is foolish, it is sinful to be drunk. And the reason for that is when you are drunk, you have submitted yourself to being controlled by a foreign substance that is not training you for holiness. It's related to Adam and Eve being controlled by the serpent. 
You will be unable to walk in love because you will be out of control. Thus the frequent calls to be self-controlled in the Bible. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control. Drunkenness doesn't allow you to be self-controlled and under the influence of the Spirit. It encourages you to indulgence, to sensuality, because there's no control. It doesn't make much of Jesus. It doesn't encourage a good life together. And by the way, since it's increasingly become common, that's also true of marijuana. And other drugs, for that matter. These things are used when they are used at levels which cause you to lose control of your body, mind, and spirit. You are not able to be controlled by the Spirit. You're not going to be able to be controlled by that Spirit. And so carefully walk in wisdom has us to steer clear of the presence of inebriation. Now, to be clear, Scripture does not say that alcohol in and of itself is evil. It does not say that. But like everything else, when it is used in such a way as to relinquish control of your body and mind, you've entered into the present evil age. Fifthly, the way that we walk in wisdom. We recognize there's evil warring against us. Two, we've got to make the best use of time as a result. Three, we need to know what the will of God is. Four, we need to not be drunk. Fifth, we need to be filled with the Spirit. We have three sub-points underneath this. You'll see them. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, there's something tricky about this passage right here, guys. You should know that. Something tricky about this. In the original language, there's only one word for the word in your Bible that has two words translated to it. Be filled. If we were being really strict on the translation, it would read, Be being filled by the Spirit. That's what it actually says. Be being filled with the Spirit. Paul recognizes that being filled with the Spirit is not something we could just do on our own. Any more than I can take you to the National Art Gallery, walk you over to a painting that you don't like by Monet, which is crazy, and I say, look at it, like it, do it, like it, right? Like, that would be crazy. Like, Nathan, I can't just like a painting, right? Something has to happen to us for us to like the painting. Something has to come into our eyes. Something has to, uh, this is the, it's a, the verb, it's, it's, uh, if you're really geeky on this stuff, it's a present active verb. So, like, it's something has to, Happen, present passive verb. Something has to happen to us. When Paul says be filled with the Spirit, he's saying position yourself in such a way as to be filled by the Spirit. This is that already not yet, by the way, guys. In Christ, we are full of the Spirit. But there's the, this is the chapters 4, 5, and 6. We've got to work this out. So just as a drunk positions himself among people and places that will give him access to alcohol, so position yourselves, church family, among people and places that will give us access to the fullness of the Spirit. Now we know from Jesus that the Spirit is like the wind that blows where it wishes. We hear its sound. We don't know where it comes from, where it goes. But we also know that while the Spirit blows at mysterious times and places, He does have His favorite places as the wind has its favorite places. You can be sure that if you go out to the beach, you're going to get a stiff breeze. Go to the side of the mountain. You're going to get a stiff breeze. So in the same way, in the same way, you can be sure that the Spirit will blow upon the gathering of the redeemed right here. You can be confident He will fill you in an environment like this. Insofar as the Word is properly taught, sought and, taught and prayed and sung. You can be sure that He's going to meet you when you open up His Word and try to understand it. The preaching, the praying, and as we'll see in a moment, you can be sure that He'll be there and fill you up at the singing of the Word. So while the while the Spirit mysteriously makes Himself known to us at various times and seasons, we can be sure that He will be pleased to fill us when we rehearse the Word of Christ to ourselves and to others. 
Don't miss that second part. And to others. Therefore, we place ourselves in such a way as to be filled by the Spirit. We do not get drunk on wine. We get, as it were, drunk on the Spirit as we glug down the Word. And as we do that, we will not be controlled by alcohol. We will be controlled by the Spirit as He ushers us and uses us uh, to so walk the holy life, to be sanctified. And this brings us back to that notion of making the best use of our time. As I said, we can be confident that the best use of some of our time is by placing ourselves in those environments where the Word and prayer uh, will wash over our souls and the power of the Spirit comes to control us. But there's more here than just reading the Word, hearing the Word preached. Look where Paul goes in verse 18. This is a Spirit-filled church. There's a lot of talk about what a Spirit-filled church is. you got it clear as day right here. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How do I walk as wise and unwise? I do those four things I mentioned. I'm filled by the Spirit by placing myself in those places. One of those places I can be full by the Spirit, get full by the Spirit, is when singing happens. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Making melody to the Lord in our hearts to God. So Paul moves to singing the Word. This is one way we are filled by the Spirit. Notice the one another to God from our heart's formulation. Do you all see that? So it is not wise to only sing songs to ourselves for ourselves. You can do that at home. Enjoy it. I do. It is not only wise to sing songs to God without singing them to one another. You can do that too. That's good. That's fine. I do that. It's not, uh, and it's not only wise to just sing songs without singing them from our hearts. In other words, this way the Spirit is not just singing from our head. I know this is true, so I will sing it. It's, no, this is sweet. Out it comes. There's something about our responding to the Lord's grace by singing to one another from our hearts to God that allows the Spirit to fill us, and that's walking in wisdom. The Psalms are there are probably in reference to the Psalms of Scripture, something that uh, church of old has always done. They sing the Psalms. The hymns there probably reference contemporary songs like Chris Tomlin, right? Maybe not Chris Tomlin. I'm guessing he wasn't around at the time. But the spiritual songs there, that likely references the nature of those songs. They're spiritual. They're guided by the Spirit in order to address one another and bring praise to God. We learned back at Chapter 4, verse 30, we must not grieve the Spirit, as Paul directed us, but instead be controlled, filled by the Spirit, by addressing one another in song to God from our hearts. Now, I don't know about you, but have you noticed that the Christian tradition is unique in this respect? That in our gatherings together, we sing. That's not common in other world religions. They might chant, but they don't sing. And the reason why we sing... It's because we're responding to the Word as it fills us up. If you ever watched a Disney movie, you've seen this happen, right? The prince comes over and kisses the future princess. She gets so happy, what does she do? She sings, right? That's what we do. The Prince of Peace, Christ the Lord, speaks His Word to us. And we're filled with the Spirit. And so after the sermon, we can't help but what? Sing. And we don't just sing to Him. We sing from our hearts to each other. 
That's so key. And this, I had to read books in seminary on worship wars, right? One of the ways that, that like churches get divided is over preferences of music, which is carnal. But this piece of God's word is important for us to understand. We respond to the word by singing to one another. And so uh, also this notion of singing to one another, this is, this is why we do music the way that we do it here at Restoration Church. If you've ever wondered why, this is why. I realize, guys, that we could turn the volume up right back there. Sean could do it. Turn the volume up on the stage with the instrumentation. We could put these guys in the mirror or in the middle and they could be a really big sort of thing and we could sing to them on the stage. And that's not in and of itself wrong. But that sort of reflects more of the, our entertainment. That's that sort of uh, music in our society is used for entertainment. Our uh, music here in the church is not primarily to entertain us. Our music, as we see, is to help us be full of the Spirit. And so because of that, I realize that we could get, like I said, 30, 40, 50 people just coming here next week because we're, we're rocking it out. But we want to be full of the Spirit, so we intentionally turn down the music. Make the instrumentation up here mere to accompany you so we can hear each other. So we can address one another. I was thinking, knowing I was going to say this, I was over here singing a while ago when we were singing these songs, and I was thinking, like, gosh, it kind of stinks that everybody's over here. I wish I could, like, you know, sing in Christ alone, you know, look at each other, right? <laughs> uh, but that's what we're supposed to do, guys. So when we sing in a little while, I want you to remember that. The reason why we do music the way that we do it is so that you would sing to God, respond to His grace, and be full of the Spirit by your singing to one another. In other words, listen to your neighbor sing. So if we can't hear each other sing, then we're not going to be able to be full of the Spirit as much. Think about that when we sing. We've set up an environment here so that we can be filled by the Spirit by our singing to one another, to God, from our hearts. This is walking in wisdom. But there are two other ways here. We give thanks for everything to God in the name of Jesus. You can see that in verse 20. Notice the totality there in everything. Also, again, notice the formulation. We give thanks in everything to the Father in the name of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the reason this is because Christ is the only reason why we're able to have anything to be thankful for. That's why we give thankful. We are thankful always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know, we recognize as Christians, we have nothing to be thankful for were it not the grace and the mercy of Jesus making it possible. So that's why we go in His name. That's why, by the way, if you ever wondered, why do Christians say, in the name of Jesus, Amen. Because we recognize He's the only one that allows us to go into the Holy of Holies and address God. So that's why. Give thanks in everything. Therefore, to be full of the Spirit, to be a Spirit-filled church, walking in wisdom, we need to be thankful always and for everything to the Father in the name or on account of the work of Christ who is in us. Now, I believe, I'm a bit biased here, but I believe that one of the greatest speeches in the history of America uh, is by a gentleman by the name of Lou Gehrig, played first base for the New York Yankees. <laughs> Many of you have heard this speech. It's an amazing speech. It really is. Uh, Lou Gehrig walks up to a microphone on July the 4th, 1939. He has just received news of the disease that now bears his name, Lou Gehrig's disease. He's one of the greatest hitters ever. 
He still has 10 records that maintain to this day. He's in the prime of his life. He has a wife that loves him. He's got parents. He was the only child of four children to make it to adulthood. He's had a lot of bad things. Things are going really well for him. He walks up to this microphone in light of all this stuff that his life forever will change. He would die two years later as a result of this disease. And he walks up to the microphone as the crowd listens intently. And he says, many of you have heard that I've been given a rip of bad luck. And then he says, yet I consider myself to be the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And he goes on to list why. Addressing the people that he came to know. I don't know that Garrig was in Christ, but he certainly models what it looks like to be full of the Spirit. Where even in the face of tragedy, he was able to find a reason to be thankful. Guys, to be clear, that doesn't mean that we're glad when evil or tragedy comes to us. But since we believe God is good and God is sovereign and He is working all things according to His purpose for our good and His glory, that means there's always a reason to be thankful. Even in the face of tragedy, we can be sure God does not love us. He cannot love us more than He already does. You have to know that, beloved. That's got to get deep into your soul. Jesus cannot love you more than He does. At all times. His love is immeasurably great. It does not wax or rain. He does not withhold one gift from you. In fact, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's given us everything. Therefore, we have every reason to always be thankful. And so may we be a spirit-filled church as is evidenced by our constantly being thankful. Not just in general because the weather is nice. That's fine. We're, we're, we're oriented by the glory of God and the good of Christ and the good of His people. And so from small to great, may we authentically, not superficially, authentically find ways to be thankful to God in the name of Jesus for what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do. And so let me begin that by saying how thankful I am for you, Restoration Church. I love you. I thank God for you. The weather in January and February in Naples is awesome. But you're who I want to do my life with. You're the people that I want my kids to follow. You're the people I want to learn from, to grow old with, if you'll stay here for a while. I'm thankful for you. The Spirit is at work among us. We are a flawed people, but you are sweet people that I thank God for. God's work is evident among you. Thirdly, finally, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of Christ Walking in wisdom, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We apply the truth properly by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, we don't have a time for a full treatment of this idea of submission. We'll think more about it next week when we talk about marriage. But we need to recognize that one of the evidences of the reality of our of evil in our world is how this word of submission has been corrupted and seen as an ugly thing. That's one of the evidences that we live in an evil age. Now, I recognize that there have been many that have abused this word, and they're wrong for that. But they took something good and corrupted it. Submission is beautiful. Those of us in Christ, of all people, should be able to see the beauty of submission when it is done wisely in its proper way. The cross of Christ is the fountain by which all of the Lord's blessings flow to us, and that cross was and is the greatest picture of submission. 
where Christ, the Son of God, who was and is of the same essence of the Father, was willing to submit himself to the Father and to the condemnation of the law, though he was innocent, so that we might have a place at his table. Submission, when done wisely, is beautiful. Submission got us salvation. And so surely we, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can see that submission to God and to one another out of reverence for Christ is good. It's beautiful when it's done wisely. So pride and arrogance have no place in our life together, guys. Humility is to be the posture of our souls. We think of others as better than ourselves, just as Christ did. And guys, by the way, that includes me as a pastor, as the guy that's regularly preaching. You should know, if you don't, I lose votes in elders' meetings. And that's good for me. My elders don't follow my counsel. Sometimes my elders. The elders don't follow. I sounded really bad right there. The elders don't follow my counsel from time to time. And that's good for me. Because I submit myself to those brothers. Submission and leadership are not enemies. They are fast friends. The best leaders are the ones that do not see themselves above anything but below everything insofar as it accords to the word of God so that in all things Christ might be glorified in our midst. And that's what it looks like to be full of the spirit, church. Submitting to ourselves, posture of humility, learning, growing in Christ. And so summing up. Foolishness, evil, debauchery, thanklessness, drunkenness, pride. These things are pressing in all around us. Trying to get us to submit to them, not to Christ and one another. We must resist. For the glory of Christ and the good of one another, we must resist. We resist the inclinations towards selfish indulgence. We make the best use of our time fighting against these evils. We learn to love as we lean into the Lord Jesus, who not only taught us how to love, but enables that love. And that's why we're doing what we're doing at this church. All that we do, we're trying to protect that, promote that, make that flourish. Reject the evil days that war against us. Press into one another here and go out and make disciples. This is one of the reasons, by the way, on Friday night, when we're the members, the male members of our church are going to get together to talk about warring against pornography because we love you. We're going to not let this stuff press in. We're, going to, we're trying to form a community here of heaven on earth. Keep that vision in front of you, restoration. Don't lose sight of it. We're not just trying to make us really moralistic people. Just try to war against the world. We understand this is good. We're trying to help each other on towards home. Walk in wisdom. Walk in love. Walk in light. Keep doing the hard work of building a community here that's a foretaste of heaven. That is wisdom personified in Christ Jesus for his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are wisdom. You are wisdom. Teach us, God, to war against the evil age. To make the best use of our time. To know your will. To not be drunk. To be filled with your spirit. To always be thankful. Singing songs. Addressing each other to you and one another. Submitting one another out of reverence for Christ. May we do these things knowing they're hard, but they're good for us. Thank you, God, that you've made these things clear to us. And thank you that Jesus enables and empowers and emboldens us towards these things. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, beloved, uh, what an appropriate response to the meal. We talked about responding to the Lord. We're going to sing in just a moment, but we have this meal to immediately respond to. This meal is a way in which we rehearse the wisdom of God. Uh, Jesus took a piece of bread on that final night before his crucifixion, held up that piece of bread, tore it in two, and said, this is my body. Broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. And he held up a cup of wine. He held it up and said, drink, for this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink in remembrance of me. And he's doing this so as to remind us. He says to do this until I return. So as to promote the gospel of wisdom in our hearts. Because he knows how easy it is to forget it. And so this glorious meal that we have together reminds us of our oneness and the wisdom that Christ has offered us in his love. So if uh, you are one that is repenting and believing on Christ alone for salvation, you have been baptized, loving his people, come and enjoy the fellowship of the drink and of the bread. Come. If that does not describe you, might I encourage you to stay where you are. I realize that will be hard. But stay where you are and consider what wisdom is and what wisdom does and look to Jesus. But again, if it does describe you, let me invite you to come. The way we do that here at Restoration Church is there's three lines. Come down here, take a piece of bread, take a cup of the juice, go back to your seat. I'll come back up and we will eat this together as a church family. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this meal. We thank you for all that it represents. And we pray even now that we would take it in a worthy manner, knowing that Christ is the only thing that makes us worthy. We pray in his name. Amen.